And if you have your notes for our series, the title of which is on the screen and on the front cover of those notes, Stolen Identity. If you do not, Ken has a set of notes, Larry has some, just get their attention, they'll get uh, some to you. We're on page 13, page 13. And lesson four of six lessons on the subject of stolen identity, who does God say I really am? So I'll briefly review where we've been and then we will get into lesson four, but I just want to remind you of a few things that are coming up. Men, this weekend is the conference that we've been advertising to you for several weeks now, Friday evening and Saturday in Livonia. Uh, Brian Chapel, who is a seminary president and an author and an excellent, excellent preacher and teacher, uh, he is going to be the keynote speaker for the Fellowship in the Gospel 2013 uh, conference. And so I encourage all you guys who can make it to, to do so. Still time for you to register uh, online. So if you'll go to the information center, let them know that you're planning to do that because we'd like to know how many of our guys are going but then you can go yourself and go to the FG, that's Fellowship Gospel 13, fg13.org, and you can register yourself online there. But I encourage you to do that if you haven't. If you can make it, uh, I'm sure you will benefit from it. That's for our guys this weekend. And then on the 26th, four weeks from today, uh, we are supposed to start our four-week newcomers orientation. We've been announcing that for several weeks. For those of you that are newcomers, that is defined as you've never taken our newcomers orientation, and it's offered to tell you more about our church and not obligate you in any way toward membership, but just to give you information about who we are, where we've come from, what we believe, where we hope to go in the future. So we offer that a few times throughout the year. And the next one of those is during this hour on May the 26th, and it goes four weeks, uh, four weeks of material, and, and I lead that. So we would love to have you as part of that if you've never taken it. Now, I said we're supposed to do that because uh, I have thrown uh, a wrench into everything on our schedule now because uh, this week I received a note and a very late last-minute invitation to go to China again. Uh, and I've been able to go uh, in one form or another, either on an island off the mainland or back in November. I was actually on the mainland and I uh, was able to go to the Philippines back in February of last year and teach Chinese house church leaders. And I'm getting the opportunity to do that again. And every time I get the opportunity to do that, I like to take advantage of it if it's at all possible because you never know how long those doors are going to be open for that. But uh, that would mess up our, that's going to mess up our schedule if I, if I do that. So I have a leadership team meeting this afternoon. I'll be discussing it with the uh, deacons, and we'll roll out the finalized schedule to you all. So we're having our newcomers uh, orientation soon. We have it planned as of right now to begin on May the 26th, but if that changes, of course, we'll let you know right away. But if you're a newcomer, uh, whichever date we begin that, think about participating in it because it would be helpful to you and we would love to have you. And then on Memorial Day, Monday the 27th, is uh, our annual Memorial Day picnic. You see that listed in your program that it's going to be as last year at Lake Erie Metro Park. So just um, make plans to be with us. We always have a good time at our Memorial Day picnic. All right, this series is Stolen Identity. Who does God really say that I am? Today is lesson four on page 13. And we have seen that Everyone lives out of a sense of identity. 
that we all carry with us an idea of who we are. And then the way we behave is consistent with who we think we are. And if what we think about ourselves and who we are is not accurate, then we are going to live, behave in unhealthy ways. If we have a skewed view of ourselves, then we are going to behave in, in uh, harmful ways, either to ourselves or to, to others. And so we have seen some of those identities that people adopt that are incorrect and then cause them to live in incorrect ways. Uh, I said that often people I, use their circumstance as their identity. They adopt their situation as who they are. But see, your situation is never who you are. Notice your, your situation can change. But who you are is not to change. And, uh, and, so, and, and if you adopt your identity related to what you do, your situation, your circumstance, and that changes, you're a lost soul. And you find that happen to people. You find people doing it for, for good reasons, but we, we need to be careful about it. If you're someone who, uh, as I said a few weeks ago, has struggled with alcohol, and perhaps you've found help in uh, something like AA, and one of the things that AA will tell you, and, and I understand why they do this, and if kept in perspective, uh, okay, but keep it in perspective, that I am an alcoholic. Well, it would be more accurate for you to say, I am, if you belong to Jesus, I am a child of God, who struggles with alcohol rather than my identity being this is what I am. And, and, and again, if you're not careful, you can adopt your situation, your struggle as your identity, and then that consumes your life and what you, what you are about. So if you've had bad things happen, um, you know, you were recently divorced, then you lead in when you tell people who you are, you know, I am a divorcee. You know, but it would be better to say I'm a child of God who has, has, is dealing with divorce because that sets aside the situation from who I really am. So a false, even if understandable, but false identity can lead us to false conclusions and unhealthy behavior, but conversely, a secure identity will lead to healthy behavior. We saw in the very first lesson that folks like Adler and Maslow told us that there are certain conditions that must be met, according to them, in order for you to be able to act in healthy ways. The term they used was self-actualization. For you to really become the person that you were intended to be, and that you want to be, then these certain conditions have to be met. And we have the hierarchy of needs listed for you in the, in the first lesson, if you want to go back and, and review that. So they're saying that we need uh, a thing or we, we need certain things done or we can't be healthy. And as a result of that, that makes us dependent on others for our psychological health. And as we're going to see, if we think we're dependent on others for our psychological health and help, then if those others don't come through, that can create all, all sorts of problems for us as it relates to those others that we think we're supposed to supply that. And so self-worth or a high self-image is necessary, say they, for self-actualization. But we saw in Lesson 2 what the Bible says about that, that in fact we naturally think highly about ourselves. 
The Bible says we all, none of us suffers from a low view of ourselves. As a matter of fact, when we strike out in anger and we say things like, I hate myself, I tried to point out in the last few weeks that even that is often tied to a high view of myself because I believe I deserve better. I'm not getting that, therefore I'm striking out at others. I'm angry internally and so on. We've seen what the, the Bible says about it, and if we do not, friends, get our worth from God, then all kinds of bad things will result. And so what we're trying to do in this series, subtitled, Who Does God Say That I Really Am?, is try to take our identities that are stolen by these false notions, even if well-intended, and to base them squarely on the truth of God's Word so that we get our identity from God which is then an unchanging identity, an accurate identity, out of which we can behave and live. So that brings us to the top of, I think I kept saying page 13, it's page 14, lesson 4. And we say there, in the last lesson we learned that people often develop a sense of self-worth based on things like intelligence and income and looks, their profession, their material wealth, social status, their skills, their talents, personal accomplishments, and so on. Now, again, I want to emphasize to you something that all of that, those items in that list have in common, and that is they all, they all can and do change. So if you're getting your self-worth out of that stuff, what happens when that changes? And what happens if it changes, you know, catastrophically? What if it happens overnight? What's going to happened to you because you've invested yourself in all of these sorts of things and now you don't have the income because you got wiped out in the stock market stock market or you get in an accident you don't have your health and you perhaps don't have your looks and not able to do the stuff you were able to do all of those things can change sometimes they can change very quickly and when we base our self-worth on those kinds of things we often fall into the following problems bulleted at the top of 14 the performance trap, which we saw last week, and the approval trap, approval addictions that we'll look at today. Performance trap, I must meet certain conditions to feel good about myself. And today we're going to see being addicted to approval, I must be approved by certain people to feel good about myself. Now I want you to note the difference in those. We saw the performance trap last week. All of our lessons are recorded and are online at our website. If you haven't been able to be with us, so you can go back and listen to those and you have the notes, so you should be able to get it. But we looked at Performance Trap last week and notice it says there, I must meet certain conditions to feel good about myself. Then approval says, I must be approved by certain people to feel good about myself. Notice the difference there. The, perform the person who is on the performance treadmill may not require other people. They may simply get internal pleasure and satisfaction out of the fact that they've performed well. But they find their satisfaction in performing well. So it says, I have to meet certain conditions. But with approval junkies, those who are addicted to approval, you've got to have people involved. To put it uh, another way, for those on the performance treadmill, people are spectators. And people are not necessary to the necessarily required for the satisfaction that I get out of performing. I've met the standard, I've met the conditions, I feel good about myself. But with the approval junkie, you've got to have people for your, your health. So, 
You could put it this way. Those people need to see my performance and say something good about it. Whereas if it's strictly performance, it may or may not involve people. Now, why is this all bad? Well, one, it's, it's inaccurate. Inaccurate self-images lead to unhealthy behavior. And here's another reason. A lot of times the standard that people set up for approval is just wrong. I mean, people just sort of make it up. I mean, you meet, you do this, we'll approve of you. Or if you're in this group, we'll approve of you. I had this illustrated to me just a couple of days ago in my ninth grade daughter's life. Annie, uh, at the school she attends, every year they have a competition. Uh, she goes to a Christian school, and Christian schools get together to compete against each other in Christian sorts of ways. Okay? They all pray that the others fail and all of that. So it's all spiritual. You pray that the other person forgets their lines, all of that, all to the glory of God. They do. They have these, they have these contests. Uh, contests for singing. Uh, contests for preaching. I've never been a big fan of preaching contests, but anyway, um, that's what they do. Uh, they have... Uh, they have uh, theatrical stuff, piano, all kinds of things. Well, Annie uh, isn't engaged in any of those things. So she finds out at school a few months ago that, um, that you either uh, participate in that and get a day away from school because it's going to take place up in Troy, or you don't get to go. And she thinks that means then she's going to be having a school day while they're doing that. So the alternative is to somehow jump into the competition, even though you aren't in any of the groups. And you can jump into the competition by entering one of the contests. So Annie surveys the contests and sees that one of them is photography. Now, I'm not a photographer. Some of you may be. You may be a trained photographer. I'm sure there's a lot of skill that goes with that. But Annie thought, I can fake my way through the photography thing. All they want me to do is take a picture. I'll enter the picture, and then I'll be able to go for a day out of school and be with my friends. So this is her objective. So Annie takes a picture. Annie takes a picture of a bike on, um, on, some, on some stone pavement. Shows about half the bike, part of the pavement, and that's her picture. She has it matted, mounted. And she comes to me the other day and she says, hey, this is my entry. I'm going to be going Friday for this thing. And we have to name it. You have to name your picture. And she shows it to me and there's a bike. And I go, bike on pavement. <laughs> that's, what I would, that's what I would call that. <laughs> now, but we're laughing about it. She's laughing. She's just, you know, sticking this thing in there because I get a day off school. Well, part of the deal is she finds out later that if, you don't, if you're not part of that, then you have the day off anyway. So now she's entered bike on pavement and she has to go. So Friday she goes. But here's the cool part. Annie is texting us with these wild texts saying, I got second place. <laughs> She got second place in the competition. And she has teachers coming up to her, telling her what a great job she did and all of that. 
And I related to her a story that when I was in high school, we used to have these uh, masochistic things called, uh, called uh, science fairs. Now, I went to the same school my girls are going to. They don't have science fairs, thank the Lord. But we did. And there were kids whose dads were engineers at Ford, you know, who worked all year to create this masterpiece thing. And then this kid shows up and lies and says he didn't get any help, you know, building this patented thing that made millions of dollars. Or... So it's, it's a science fair. And, you know, so I, if you're in a science class, you have to participate in the science fair. No lie. So day before science fair, I remember it's science fair. And it's embarrassing. It's just completely embarrassing. Even if I had remembered it a month ago, it's still going to be embarrassing. But I've got to produce, I gotta do something. So I look at the list. I've got about 20 things, categories of stuff you can do. And one of them was fertilizer. So I'm not going there, buddy. I'm, <laughs> that is not the fertilizer that I used, all right? <laughs> That's what you were thinking, was it? That's exactly what you were thinking. So I got to come up with something really fast. And so I tell my mom, you know, science fair is tomorrow, fertilizer. I got to go out to like Frank's Nursery or something back when they were in business. And we buy some of these plant spikes, like Job's plant spikes, right? So we buy some of those. And I've got, here's my fertilizers, water, uh, seed, uh, dirt, and Job's plant spikes. And I have four parquet butter dishes into which those four things go. I have a paper towel that I lay out on the table, and those four parquet butter dishes go on it. Behind it, I have a poster that says fertilizer, written kind of crooked. And then it lists, bullets, my four fertilizers. Now, the thing goes, Friday night, they have a big fair. People come. For some reason, I wasn't interested in going. I was embarrassed, so I don't want to go. I just want to get a grade and not fail. Friends of mine went. They call me. Brown, you got honorable mention. (laughs) Now, how in heaven's name? Who's judging this thing? Members of the White Cane Society? (laughs) And I think they're joking. But I really got honorable mention for what I just described to you. So I go into school the next week. That's a Friday night. I go into school the next week, and our science teacher starts out class by saying, we obviously had a major difference of opinion <laughs> about who should have gotten awards in the science fair because I got a D on my project, <laughs> which was probably higher than I deserved nonetheless, but honorable mention in the, in the fair. Now, I say all that to say, if you're looking for approval from people who, and look, if you're a judge in that stuff, there's a bunch of subjectivity, maybe you just want to hurry and get out of there, who knows what else is going on. But if you're looking for approval from people who are judging stuff that you do like that, and if your life is going to be up or down based upon what some group of people say, then you are setting yourself up for a life of up and down and very often down and misery. And so I've tried to teach the girls that, and I use this as a lesson. We got a good laugh out of it for Annie. She's proudly displaying her second-place ribbon. But nevertheless, it is a case in point. And so take a look at, then, third of the way down on page 14. 
Last week, we saw how most people believe success, and that is meeting certain standards, will bring happiness and fulfillment. In the second half of the lesson, we saw that the gospel actually overturns that philosophy completely and frees us from the performance trap. This week's mistaken mindset is almost as common. The desire to be liked, respected, and noticed is strong in all of us. In and of itself, it's okay. It's part of our God-given desire for loving relationships. No one naturally likes disapproval and rejection, but this desire can get out of control and actually begin to dominate our lives, and I'll remind you of how you'll know when that's happening in a bit. And that's something it was never intended to do. Seeking man's approval is a danger that's warned against in Scripture. Proverbs 29:25. fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When it says there, fear of man, you could put next to that peer pressure. The word fear in Scripture means an intense reverence for. So fear of the Lord. I have an intense reverence for the Lord, which then causes me to act in certain ways, to obey Him. That intense reverence for the, for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says Scripture. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But if I have an intense reverence for man, if I have too, hard, too high regard for people, and what people think, that will prove to be a snare. And that fear of man, that, that, that emphasis on the approval of people, comes in a number of forms, and we see it in our teenagers, right, our kids. And those kids grow up to be adults who have adult ways of performing for, for peer pressure and the approval of others. Isaiah 51, do not fear the reproach of men or be terrified by their insults. Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both. In Galatians 1, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, you might make the mistake. You read that. You say, okay, what you're telling me is, who cares what other people think? And maybe you've said that or maybe you thought that. But be careful about simply saying, I don't care what other people, other people think. The way you should gauge how you should be attached, connected to what other people think is this. That you care too much about what other people think if you need their approval in order for you to function well. But you should care about what other people think. If what you're doing is trying to gauge what they need from you. So this is not saying detach yourself from people who cares what other people think. The truth is, I need to care to some extent what you all think. God has given me a responsibility as a pastor, and the Bible says, to him who much is given, what? Much will be required. And so I need to know whether or not I am fulfilling that responsibility, and part of that is in my engaging with you and knowing whether or not that's happening, whether or not, to the best of my ability, I'm meeting the uh, God-given responsibilities that he has given to me on your behalf. And so if somebody comes and criticizes me for the job that I'm doing as a pastor, I shouldn't respond by saying, I don't care what other people think, right? So I need to know what those in my sphere of responsibility 
think, and I need to care what they think, and I need to evaluate whether or not I am loving them and serving them as God has assigned. But I cannot and should not be controlled by what they think. So how do I, how do I know if I'm being controlled by that? Well, I will tell you in a moment, but before I do that, let me give you one other way you should not respond to this. You should not respond by saying, well, okay, then I don't care what other people think. It may be very necessary for you to care what other people think if God has assigned you a responsibility as he has to us and to each other. You should also, though, not respond by going the opposite direction to show that you don't care what other people think. Now, what am I talking about? You know, you take uh, teenagers. Peer pressure is a big deal. We all know that. So you get some kid who just says, you know, I'm not getting the approval of these kids in school. In fact, I'm getting quite the opposite. So I'm going to go the opposite direction to show them how much I don't care about what they think. So then they start like really dressing really weird. And they start getting involved in really weird stuff. And the fact that it's weird is good because the more weird it is, the more it shows I don't care what you all think. But notice what's motivating the whole thing. It's what you all think. In fact, who is still setting the agenda for that? It's still the crowd. And so we have to ask ourselves, who sets the agenda? Whose agenda am I following? We know scripturally that agenda needs to be set by God, but very often we allow it to be set by others, seeking their approval or going the opposite extreme, going out of our way to show them how much we don't need their approval, which is still part of them setting the agenda. So how do you know if you've, you've gone too far? Well, one, ask yourself, whose agenda am I following? But also, by your reaction to not receiving that approval. You will know you've gone too far in seeking the approval of others, caring what people think, by your reaction to a failure to get their approval. So you all have heard me say many times over the years that we can develop within our hearts idols, idols for approval, that then show themselves in very malevolent ways And that development, that progression of an idol looks like this. Let me remind you. It starts with, I want. So I start with something or someone that I want. In this case, I want the approval of other people. It's a desire internally within me. And that I want can then and often does move to, I need. In order for me to function well, in order for me to be satisfied, in order for me to be happy, I need the approval of others. You let that become more intense, and it becomes not just I want and I need, but I must have the approval of others. I will do almost anything to get the approval of others. And you see people do it, right? You see a young person who's willing to, what do you guys want me to do? What do I have to do to be part of the frat? You tell me what I have to do. I want to be part of you guys. Whatever it is, even if it borders on killing me and sometimes does kill me, I want to do it. I want, I need, I must. But that should translate into me getting your approval. And so if I, if, if I get your approval, then I've achieved my objective. But what if I don't get your approval? 
Well, then the fourth item is this. You should. See, I want your approval. I need your approval. I must have your approval. Therefore, you should approve of me. Now, notice the pronoun went from I to you. So it went from something that was internal that I want to now it's involving you, something you should do. And now I'm beginning to look at what you should do. You should approve of me. But fifth thing is, what if that doesn't happen? You didn't. I want, I need, I must. You should, but you didn't. And then the last item is you will pay. Every kid who has shot up a school went through that. I must have, I didn't get, you're going to pay. And most people don't go off and shoot up a school. Most people are just angry regularly because they didn't get what they felt they must have. In this case, the approval of other people. So bottom of page 14, it shows up then. How do you know that you want it too much? It shows up in anger. Resentment, hostility, bitterness. Those who experience rejection often desire revenge. But it starts with, I want, I need, I must. And God says, you don't. You, you don't have to have that. But if you come convinced of that, everybody lives out of a sense of identity, and it can have very ill effects, bad, bad behavior. Now let me just say to you, dear friends, you read that list, anger, resentment, hostility, bitterness, and in a group, of, a group of 10 people, let alone whatever number's in here, you just get a handful of people together, and there are always people that are struggling with those things. And I don't know what y'all are struggling with, but I'd be, I, I, if I were a gambling man, I would bet. There are lots of people who are struggling with that stuff. And if you look at that list and you say, you know, that's me, then please, please, please consider the root of that. What desire is it that you have that you believe you absolutely had to have and you must get that is not being fulfilled and therefore it results in this stuff? And all of those are things that God says in Galatians chapter 5 are fruits of the sinful nature, not fruits of the Spirit. So when you see that kind of behavior happening in your life, don't blow it off. This is to be a barometer to tell you there is something wrong here. There is something deep-seated wrong here. There is something at root here that is now giving rise to this ill fruit. Anger, shame. A feeling of worthlessness because nobody likes you. And because I'm so tied to people's approval of me, if they don't like me, I'm not worth anything. Attaching our identity to certain social groups. So I've got to get on this team. If I don't get on the team, I'll die. If I don't become a cheerleader... On the cheerleading team, I'll die if I, right? Hypersensitivity to criticism. Complaints and negative evaluations can begin to control us if approval becomes too important to us. If critical remarks hurt us so badly we can't think about anything else, we need to take a close look at why we're so sensitive. Whose approval are we seeking most? Or it may give rise to avoiding people, isolation. This fits some of you all as well. Somebody just say, you know, I, I just don't like to talk to people. 
I'm shy. Now look, there are introverts, there are extroverts. I understand that. But I'm, but, but I'm just shy. I know Jesus says I'm supposed to have relationships with people like you. <laughs> but what if I, I mean, what if I say something dumb? You know, I just always, when I'm talking to people, it seems like I just always put my foot in my mouth and I just always say something dumb. Well, number one, you're the one who's thinking about the dumb stuff you say more than anybody else. You know that? I mean, let's just be honest about how self-conscious we are. And some take it to the extreme that they can't talk to other people because they might say something dumb. But we all have that to some extent. You go into a restaurant, you finally get your seat, you're walking to your table, and you're thinking about all the people who are looking, how do I look, you know, am I tucked in okay, am I, you know? And people walk in, they got their hands, they don't know what to do, they're fiddling around. Because everybody's looking at them. They think. And the truth is, you know what everybody else is doing? They're eating. They already had their moment of worrying about what everybody else thought about them. They're now happy they're safely tucked away in a booth. And they're not looking at you. And they don't, and they don't care about you because, you because you are the center of you. And you're the one who thinks about you most often. So get, friends, let's get that through our heads. You're thinking about you more than other people are. And if you say something dumb, it's okay. Because guess what? We're humans, we're frail, and we're sometimes dumb. So if I make a mistake or if I say something foolish, okay. I don't live for the approval of others. So if this is happening to you and you're avoiding people and you're making excuses for not obeying Jesus, by not developing relationships with people, understand that there's something at root with that. Bowing to peer pressure, pride. So what is the solution? Page 15. Last week we saw two specific aspects of salvation that solved the problem of our performance trap, and that is that on the cross Christ became my propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God, and that salvation I was justified, and so God sees me through the righteousness of Jesus. God's anger for all my failure to measure up has been turned away. Now I have a totally righteous standing before Him. He views me just as if I met every standard because of Jesus. We've already seen some biblical evidence that shows us the foolishness of trying to please others. Let's now look at some theological truths that show us how God approves of the believer. So we went through these, these um, in our series we just completed on the gospel for real life. So we can go through them quickly, but regeneration. It means to impart new life to that which was spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's the work of regeneration that makes us new creatures. Regeneration is not a self-improvement program, not a clean-up program for our sinful nature. Rather, it literally makes the believer a new person. It's the new birth that Jesus spoke of to Nicodemus in John 3. Now, because of this, our nature has been made new, and the Spirit of God lives within us, and growth and change are promised. How does this help? The presence of new life guarantees the potential for change. I can get better. I don't need to be stuck in a rut. I can leave behind my old failures and look forward to a better life. I now have the promise of eternal life, a blessing infinitely more desirable than gaining approval from other people. Okay? So let's think about this gift of being a new person 
in Christ that God has given us in regeneration, but also the new standing that we have in adoption. It's the legal placement of someone into a family as a child. When we get saved, at the moment of salvation, God places us into his family and gives us the rights and privileges of a child, and God is our legal father. Being placed into God's family implies his total acceptance and enduring love. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And then Hebrews 12 says God disciplines us because he loves us and because we are his children. So how does adoption impact my addiction to approval? If one keeps in mind he's adopted and thus approved by God, whether anyone else approves of him does not ultimately matter. So bear in mind that God has made us new creatures. And we can, and not only can, we will, according to Scripture, improve because of that. But further... He sees us as his child, and that will never change, whatever our performance and whatever anybody else thinks about us. And then lastly, reconciliation. The work of Christ removed the separation between God and man that was caused by sin. Christ has restored for us that which sin destroyed, perfect fellowship between God and man. We are no longer God's enemies. In fact, we're able to stand before him holy and without blemish, totally accepted. Romans 5.10, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more than having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Once we were alienated from God, enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God doesn't just tolerate us, we say. You're actually 100% acceptable to the Supreme Judge, the perfect, holy, and righteous God Almighty. And we're acceptable to Him for only one reason. Christ abolished the sin barrier, made peace with God through His blood on the cross. The righteousness of Christ is now credited, applied to my account. How does that help my addiction for approval? If we're saved, we can never be more acceptable to God than we are now. Those seeking approval find it in a relationship with God. If God approves of you, it ultimately does not matter what others think. We all live out of a sense of identity. Now, I'll close with this illustration. About a year ago, I got a call from a family, not in our church, never been to our church, but they got my name through a pastor friend, and he's, he knows them. He's too far away to counsel with them, so he recommended they call me. Their teenage son... Uh, was engaging in harming himself. Uh, this, this young man would cut himself. And uh, that's, that's difficult to deal with, you know. But I go into that encounter with this young man loaded with what we're talking about here. What does the Bible say about who we are? What does the Bible say about what motivates us to become angry and resentful, even to the point that we're hurting ourselves. So this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is not just in Sunday school and then you leave it here on Sunday. I've got a young man sitting in front of me who is harming himself. And I am very afraid, and his parents are very afraid about where that might go. So I spend a few weeks getting to know him and just talking to him and hopefully gaining his trust so that he'll open up. But then over time, he starts telling me what's going on, and it's many of the things that we've read about here. He's not approved by his peers. He doesn't fit in easily. 
he's overweight, he's not athletic, he's not particularly good looking, those kind of things. So he doesn't have a natural group that he, he fits into. And so life in his circumstances are not good for him. And he's living then out of an identity that says, I'm no good because he's gaining his identity from the approval or lack of approval from other people, right? But his family goes to church. They're faithful in church. He knows Scripture. So I have that to appeal to. And I start to ask him about how God views him. And it was telling. You know, well, God's not, God, God, doesn't, God doesn't really like me. Because I, I know I shouldn't be doing this stuff. So I do this stuff. and then, So he's estranged from God in his mind. Because he's got to perform for God. So I'm able to tell him, you know, Jesus performed because you can't perform. Now here's a young man who's grown up in church. But the truth is he really doesn't know the gospel. Jesus performed. He did what you can't do. And God receives us through the perfection of Jesus. So I tell him that. And then I tell him, I want you to tell me who you are in Christ. I want you to write down. This is your homework. Write down who you are in Christ. And he comes back, and he had done some research in the Bible. He had a number of things. But just, just a few. You know, if I'm really saved, which he doubted because of what he did, but if I'm really saved, I'm going to go to heaven. And that was about as far as it went. I have the hope of a future in heaven because of Jesus. But what about right now? What's your identity in Christ right now? And I gave him a list. This is a list that I print out and have been giving to people for years that has just about every reference in the New Testament to who we are in Christ. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are God's, we are God's children. We are servants of the Most High. I mean, it goes on with all of these lofty things that we are in Christ. Long list. And I have him read that, and I say, I want you... Oh, let me back up. I said, hey, where do you normally do this cutting of yourself? It normally happened in the seclusion of his own room at home. I said, okay, everywhere that you do this, I want this list to be posted. And he mostly does it in his bedroom. And so on his mirror and on his backside of his door, I want that list posted. And do you know that that kid doesn't cut himself anymore? Now, you know, it's not like that. He came to me back the next week. I was tempted. I'm trying to. But over, over just a few weeks, this kid started to think about himself differently. Started to see himself from God's perspective, not all of these cruel kids. Yikes, right? Cruel. But he started to see himself from this vantage point of someone much, much more important. And in terms of some things that are much, much more important than his weight or what team he's on, or any of that. And as a result of that, he started to see not a high self-image, not a low self-image. He saw an accurate self-image of himself. That's what we got to do, guys. That's what you got to do. That's what you got to tell people to do. You know, the Bible, the Bible does address the stuff people go through. If we'll see it the way God has laid it out, if we'll see what he says about what our problems are and how we tend to go off the rails when we don't view it through the lenses that he's supplied in Scripture, and if we will do that, then it'll address your resentment, your anger, you know, your, your uh, low self-image, all of that stuff that secular psychology, 
And if it's, if it's unbiblical, not all of it's unbiblical, but if it's unbiblical psychology, seeks to address, the Bible actually addresses. God has the answers because God made us and he knows us better than anybody else. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its enduring truth. Its truth endures because it is truth from you and you are eternal. There is no ultimate truth apart from you. Uh, your word is truth, Jesus said, and you have, you have codified it, you have printed it, and you have preserved it for us in your, in your word. So help us, Lord, to use this resource that you have given to us in order to see ourselves there in the mirror that is its pages. And help us, Lord, to use it as the filter through which we, we, uh, we uh, evaluate every proposition with which we are confronted. Lord, I pray that in mining its riches and applying it to our lives and the things that we struggle with, that we will find the freedom that you intend for us in the truth of your word. I pray that any who are struggling with resentment and bitterness and anger and shame and isolation uh, and perhaps even thinking about harming themselves, oh Lord God, that the truth of your word and the application of your spirit would change their mindset as you touch their heart, that this week we would live in the joy of the Lord that is a gift from you because of Jesus. Grant us safety this week as we try to implement these things within the circumstances in which you have placed us. And bring us back next Lord's Day, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.